Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year. This is Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. We are in Atlanta. You hear around me the sounds of the annual meeting of the American Economic Association. Most of the world's economists have gathered here to PowerPoint at each other. We are parked here with microphones and some space we borrowed from the Institute for New Economic Thinking, for which we are grateful. I have an announcement. AlphaChat has a new partner, the William Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance. They are part of the Watson Institute at Brown University in Rhode Island. When I say partner, I actually mean that we are making this podcast together. Mark Blythe is the director of the center. He and I have been exchanging cranky emails about economics and finance and politicians and morals for a very long time. That is basically the whole point of AlphaChat. So now we're going to take those cranky conversations and record them. Mark is here in Atlanta today, along with Megan Green. She is the chief economist at Manulife Asset Management. We often turn to her to help make sense of the world in clear English. You will also hear Ioana Marinescu from the University of Pennsylvania. She's an incredibly inventive labor economist. It is not an accident we have her today. It is Jobs Day. It is when the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases what it knows about jobs and wages from December. So this thing has been happening where we think the numbers have to get worse, but they keep getting better. Like today, when they came in at 312,000 new jobs. That is a lot more than normal, and it is a lot more than anybody predicted. Every time this happens, we say this. We say there is slack in the labor market. That is a maddeningly imprecise term. And so I started by asking Ioana, Megan, and Mark to define it. So slack is the general idea is to think about whether there are workers out there who are ready to work but aren't currently working. And so if there is slack, that would allow in principle wages to be lower because um, employers have their pick of workers and therefore it's hard to have a higher wage in that situation because workers compete with each other. Now, how do you measure it? One usual measure is the overall unemployment rate. And of course, that's been very low for a while now. Therefore, you know, it is surprising that wages aren't rising more if your measure of slack is the unemployment rate. Uh, But I would propose that, you know, another way of looking at it is to look at um, labor force participation. But even more specifically, if you take prime wage, uh, prime age, sorry, workers between ages 25 and 54, most of those people are not studying and they're not yet retiring. So we expect them to be working. Uh, And then you look at how many of them are working relative to the total population in that age range. Mm -hmm. That gives you the employment to population ratio, prime age employment to population. And that uh, has been quite low and kind of on a downward trend in the U.S. actually since 2000 and getting worse after the uh, Great Recession. And it's been going up, but we still haven't uh, reached the 2000 level. So in that sense, you could say, according to that measure, there yeah. is still slack relative to the level that we had uh, in 2000. So is slack a measure of employer power? 
It, it can be seen as a measure of employer power indeed because it um, measures again the potential competition among among workers. So this is there's but there's still I think this is important to talk about. There's no one number that we can look at. You have employment to population ratio, but generally when people talk about slack, we're not talking about any specific number. No. Megan. Yeah, no, I was going to say, um, yeah, I agree that it's a, a reflection of how many people you can continue to bring into the workforce. If you, if there are lots of people out there who just aren't working that you can bring in, there's lots of labor slack. If there isn't, then we've run out of slack. Um, and I think in terms of measuring it, you're trying to measure it relative to the natural rate of employment. The problem is that's like a unicorn. You can't actually measure that. Um, it's a bit like trying to describe the smell of coffee to someone is trying to say exactly what Nehru or the natural rate of employment is. And so that's the problem. Um, and often unemployment overshoots the natural level of employment as well. So when the labor market's really tight, often unemployment's lower than the natural rate of employment. Yeah, we are at this place right now where we're discussing all sorts of things that are indefinable. You mentioned uh, Nehru, the non-accelerate. Explain to me what Nehru is before I before I completely botch it. So it's the, um, the rate of employment um, that you would find when you're also at your long run um, rates uh, of interest rates and your economy is growing at its potential. So it's just kind of the steady state of employment. That so you if everything's expect. going great, this yep. is the percentage of people that we think should be unemployed. And, and the reason that's important is or because... employed, actually. Or employed, yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, and so the reason that's important is that that number, at least the way the Federal Reserve looks at it, has been dropping steadily. So we used to think that an acceptable rate of unemployment was 4.55%, and that has been dropping consistently, right? Yeah, and the Fed has updated its estimate for Nehru several times mm -hmm. um, just in this cycle, actually. So, like I said, it's really hard to measure. Um, we have no idea actually how to measure this or GDP growth or the long run rate or any of these things, actually. Or any of the good stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. I just want to briefly jump in sure. for our audience to, Please, uh, yeah. to talk about why there must be unemployment, because I think it's not perhaps obvious to the audience. We have to think here about uh, what we call frictional unemployment, meaning that when some Someone loses a job it naturally takes some time to find a new job so even when everything is great you expect some unemployment similarly when someone finished schooling they may not find a job the day you know that they finish mm -hmm. schooling maybe it takes them a couple of weeks so these frictions create some normal rate of unemployment even in a great economy people don't transition from job to job instantaneously and that's why we do expect some unemployment even in the best of times just due to these you know delays in uh, finding a job and moving from job to job your point being that that it's not purely callous if an economist or or yeah. or, or if a federal reserve <laughs> official says this is the uh, rate of unemployment that we expect to see if things are running perfectly, that doesn't mean that we want to cause 3.9% of America to e be immiserated. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. And by the way, this is uh, Megan Green of Manulife who just jumped in there. Uh, Mark Blythe uh, from Brown. Uh, how do you define slack? I don't. Or oh, rather, man, I knew you'd do that. I know, I know. So here's the thing. I think it's a bit like dark matter. I think you invoke it when the normal stuff doesn't work. <laughs> Right. So we've got all these ways of thinking about labor markets and capacity utilization, all these GDP growth, all these different measures. And yet we seem to have been inhabiting this very weird space for the past couple of years, whereby wages should rise. Right. Mm -hmm. Very simple demand and supply. We're running out of workers. 
the economy is going great, so they have to have wage rises. And we've seen a little of that, but when you shake it out in real terms, there really isn't much going on. So the puzzle is, right, how is it that we can have this world and where we have what we call full employment and wages aren't rising in real terms? Oh, we don't really know, so we'll throw the word slack into the mix. It's dark matter. It performs exactly the same function. It is the je ne sais quoi of economics. Genau. It has a certain quality that's slack. Yeah, I would say that we've been here before where we thought we were out of workers and actually, lo and behold, workers kept coming into the workforce in the 90s. And if you try to figure out where they were coming from, they were students who were graduating or retired people who decided to come out of unemployment or really discouraged workers who had just thrown their hands up and said, I'm never finding a job, who all of a sudden could and decided they wanted to work. So we've, we've been in this position before, not quite the same position where we don't have any wage growth, yeah. given how tight the labor market is, but we've been in this position where we thought that we used up all the slack and we hadn't. So the danger of thinking of, of slack is this conceptual idea where we can't quite pin it down, but we do know that we need to hold on to some of it to keep inflation from happening. Uh, the danger of that is that we avoid very good outcomes. And some of those very good outcomes are the ones that we're seeing right now. One of the things that Janet Yellen talked about when she was still the Fed chair uh, was, you know, what would happen if you ran a high pressure economy, uh, meaning that you sort of let the unemployment rate go as low as you possibly could could get it um, just to see what would happen. I think we're starting to see some of that. We have a lot of anecdotal evidence um, that uh, that companies are willing to in, to employ people who have a, a drug history, uh, people who have a prison record, uh, things that they wouldn't have contemplated two years ago. But even when you're in employing the marginal worker, you're still not seeing that feed into wage growth. Now, Sorry, the, but explain that. The marginal worker. You're talking about people. Some, somebody you normally wouldn't employ. right? Okay. So basically the army taking somebody with a drug conviction or alternatively employ doing the same thing. So you're tapping non-traditional sources in the labor pool because you've got no slack. That would be the way of thinking about it. Now, the problem is it just comes back to this fundamental problem. Why is there no wage growth if that's the case? So there's something very odd going on. Now, you invoked inflation a moment ago. We'll have this high inflation if it comes along. We've run a giant experiment since the financial crisis. We're about, depending on how you count it, 17 trillion or more dollars, yen and euros have been pumped into the global money supply. And unless you're basically Brexit or Venezuela, there's not much inflation anywhere. So if there's no inflation going on, what does that tell us about labor markets? Well, it tells us that it's very hard to push on in terms of getting markups. It's very hard for labor to push on and claim more of the surplus. And it's very hard for employers to push on as well. That's what, you know, you have a lot of money sloshing around, but you're not seeing it show up in prices. So there's an interesting phenomena going on here in terms of why is there no inflation? Why is there no wage growth? And yet we have a full employment economy. That's the puzzle. Don't you sometimes just wish you had an expert on exactly that to help you understand what's going on? It would be awesome if we did. It's almost like it's almost like we have someone at the table right now who specializes in exactly that, helping us understand why it is that uh, low unemployment rates don't necessarily lead to wage growth or inflation. I mean, I think just to put some actual numbers on this, year-over-year uh, -year wage growth, um, which is how we, how, for all employees, uh, is, which is how we measure it, is 3.2% uh, in December. Um, that's much higher than it was before when we were sitting at 25 2.7% two years ago, wondering why there was no wage growth. But it's not nearly as high as it was uh, at the end of the last expansion. So even if wage growth has grown, which is a great thing in what we can still call a high-pressure economy, it is not where we would expect it would be at this point. So now I'm going to point to Joanna sitting next to me. Yes, so in order to understand this, we have to think about a wage determination or, or how exactly we arrive at a certain level of the wage for employees. 
And so uh, my recent uh, research uh, shows that in many cases, employers are able to pay people less than their worth. Now, uh, I, I do want to zoom out a little bit and say that part of the reason why wages aren't growing so much could be because productivity growth is lower. So basically the pie that we have uh, isn't growing very fast. But still, the fact that workers are go getting essentially none of that small growth is still something that deserves some thinking about. And so that's where my uh, uh, research comes in asking, well, how is it possible that workers are able to hold down, uh, sorry, not workers, employers are able, able to hold down the wages of workers. And so what I've shown uh, in my prior work is that when labor market concentration increases, employers pay people less. And so what do I mean with employer or labor market concentration? This is the idea that for a given number of jobs, uh, let's take baristas, just you know, as a, a simple example, there's a hundred barista job. If 90 of those are at Starbucks, it's not really like there's a hundred barista job because Starbucks isn't going to compete with itself raising wages when they're trying to recruit people. And so you could, that's just a simple example, but you could apply this idea to many industries. And so the general pattern is that many labor markets are highly concentrated, meaning that only a few employers basically own the jobs in those markets. And that we show that the higher the concentration is, meaning the more domination by a few employers and the lower the wages. So that can allow uh, employers to hold down wages. Another way of looking at this, and this is my more recent work that I actually just presented today at this conference here where we are at the ASSA <laughs> annual meetings. So um, another way of looking at this problem is to ask, well, if some employer pays more than other employers, how many more workers could this employer attract? And so, you know, in, in principle, in a perfectly competitive market, if you pay more than your friends, everyone wants to work for you and, you know, hooray, you can attract a lot more people. But in reality, workers are tied down for many reasons, including, you know, some jobs are too far from home. Some jobs don't offer the kind of flexibility they need to take care of their family. Some jobs don't exactly fit their skills, etc. So jobs are very different. So that, in practice, even though an employer might offer higher wages, it can attract a few more people, but not necessarily attract everyone you know, in the market to their job. And so that points to a more general problem, which doesn't have to do with any domination of a market by a few employers, but just the fact that, practically speaking, for any particular worker, often there are not that many choices given the many constraints that they face. You know, they have a price of commuting, they, they want to use their skills in a certain way and this and that. So basically, they don't have necessarily many realistic alternatives. And this is then manifested in my research by showing you that when you increase the wage that you're willing to pay as an employer, you do get more people, but not a lot more people. Uh, again, because people are tied for many reasons uh, in these in this other uh, jobs. And so that is another way of saying that employers are able to pay workers less. So now the second explanation is not just that there's few employers, but simply that workers have preferences for a particular kind of job that just fits. And there aren't that many other jobs that fit as well. And because of that great fit, employers can pay them less 
because they know they're not going to leave. This is the best fit for them. So that allows employer to uh, keep wages down. So that's another way of looking at this. this uh, but this decision. makes intuitive sense to what every single one of us and every single listener is going to remember about a job search, which is that you're not searching for lowercase job. You're looking for a very specific job near where your spouse already has a job that uses the skills that you already have within an industry where you know people. That's these are. I mean, I, I think you know we run public policy as if there's no friction in economics, as if there's no difficulty doing any of these things, operating markets perfectly. And then when you actually look at the empiric research, like what you're talking about, everything is friction. Right. Friction explains absolutely everything that we're confused by. Right. And so one of the things that we show, which sort of shows you the intuition, is that in very big cities. Uh, first of all, concentration is less, so there's more employers around that you can choose from. But also, we showed that uh, people's sort of reacting to wages is higher. Like, you know, when an employer pays more, it gets a lot more people coming to them when they're in a big city. Because the, it's a very dense area where there's lots of workers, lots of employers. It's closer to what we usually have in mind when we think a perfectly competitive market with all those people, all those employers in the same place. In small cities, there's barely any reaction. Wages increased. That doesn't do too much in terms of attracting Great, more workers you. again because you know you just don't have that density. Yeah, and this makes sense in the context of the um, small business surveys, right? Because the number one problem that small businesses cite is that they can't attract workers, and so there is a question about well, then why don't they just raise wages? And I think this answers that question. I mean, I'm I think of Neil Kashkari's great quote: "If you're complaining about not being able to find workers and you're not raising wages, then you're just whining." Um, but it, you know, I think that what Jan is saying is that actually. It's, it's not in the company's interest to raise wages because they might get a few more people, but it won't really solve the problem. So there's a, a bit of a problem with that. Yeah, no, I find that that's fascinating. What you're, what you're exactly what you're talking about. There's, there's a ritual that happens if you follow economics or finance Twitter. Every time the Fed's beige book comes out, which is just this survey of what businesses are thinking about, Fed district by Fed district, it's fascinating reading because it's the only sort of uh, structural but also anecdotal account we have uh, of, of the economy. Um, we go through this ritual on Twitter where people pick out companies being frustrated that they can't find workers, and then we all yell at them for not giving them wages. Um, I also wonder whether it's whether companies also know that we're we don't know when this cycle is going to end, but everything is going to go pear shaped at some point. It's going to get worse at some point. Uh, it's going to be easier to pay workers less, and so I wonder if they're just holding on doing anything they can to attract workers, better conditions, better benefits, anything that you can offer just once so that they don't get stuck with this higher pay level when the expansion ends, as it will in the next year? So I think it could take a little bit longer to for the expansion to end. But mm -hmm. yeah, that could be a piece of it. I, I wouldn't have said as much six months ago, but um, mm -hmm. I, I, given the market moves over the past four months or so, yeah. maybe companies are thinking, okay, the heyday is over. Um, and they're right, the heyday is over. The best is behind us. It was in Q2 of last mm -hmm. year in, tr in terms of growth. So we're only slowing down from here yeah. um, in this in this cycle. So I think there probably is some, some um, value in what so, you're saying. So I want to add to that by, by, by by thinking also about the fact that if a company raises wages and conditions for new hires, oftentimes, uh, you know, morale considerations demand that they do so also for their existing employees. And that's where this fear of the recession kicks in, because if you've raised conditions for everyone and then you're hit with a negative shock, 
you know, it might get you into trouble. So that that might, you know, it's, it's another co uh, consideration, you know, to think about from the point of view of the but employer there, logic. There are also some more macro level variables that have been playing into this for a long time. So if you look internationally at countries that still have relatively strong trade union movements, then you find that wage growth holds up. I mean, we are talking about frictions earlier. You know, there are frictions at different levels. So what we've been discussing are the micro level frictions, but there are other sort of positive, if you think of terms of wage growth or returns to labor, you've got positive frictions in the form of the ability of trade unions to actually demand a higher share of product. Now, in, in countries where you can still do that, you get better returns to wages. This is part of the Scandinavian story. That used to be true in Germany, and then Germany basically globalized its supply chains through Eastern Europe. And the ability to basically say to the German trade unions, you're all fine, you're great, but if you really want a big wage increase, that plant's going to Romania has a wonderfully chilling effect on wage growth, and that's what's been happening in Germany for the past decade. So there's these micro, but there's also these much more macro level variables that go into play as well. Very true, I think unions are very important, and actually there's uh, research on the US um, you know, a labor market situation showing that, as I said, I found in my own work that labor market concentration tends to depress wages, and other colleagues have shown that this phenomenon is lesser in industries that are more unionized, even in the US. So unions seem to play a protective role. My own ongoing work with French data, when, where unions have a lot more power, shows similar effects that in France, uh, unions make sure that workers share into profits in a, in a way that limits this adverse effect of a lack of competition. I also wonder, you talked about morale earlier. I thought that was fascinating because uh, one of the things we know about, you know, economists have always wondered why it is that business owners don't give pay cuts in recessions because it makes sense. Right. You, you can afford to pay less. You pay less. Everybody keeps their jobs. And it turns out that, you know, we're complicated primates and we don't like it. It's really bad for morale to give people uh, pay cuts and they will not accept them, particularly nominal pay cuts. That is the actual number in your pay cut in your on your paycheck that has nothing to do with inflation. Um, but what is the place where workers will accept uh, nominal pay cuts is in benefits and bonuses. And so one of the things that we're seeing at the end of this cycle is that companies are offering benefits and bonuses because they absolutely know from really good evidence in the past that they can take them away again whenever they want. So I think in a way what we're seeing right now is a ton of wage growth, but with a form of wages that is negotiable. That is not your salary, which you will never take a cut in, but yeah. but the other stuff, the, the gym memberships that they can take away next year. Well, and, and bonuses and shares, for example, uh, there's no risk for companies to offer that usually because they're performance tied. So yeah. in a recession, if the company does really poorly, well, then people aren't getting their bonuses that year and they have to understand because that's how it works. They were never promising yeah. a certain number. So that makes sense that they're not doing it in terms of wage growth, which mm -hmm. needs to be replicated and increased every year, but in, in terms of things that aren't a risk for the firm. But then there's also the question of do people think the old chestnut in nominal or real terms? So on the news, you hear that 3% wage growth and the prior quarter was 3% wage growth. Yippee, we're all great. And then when you look at the real numbers, you're talking about a $50 increase in weekly earnings over an entire year. So, you know, factor in inflation into that and it's not there. So it's very interesting on a micro level. People do confuse nominal and real all the time. They get excited about nominal when they should focus on real. You can take away their benefits easier than their nominal wage increases, which is really weird if you think about it that way. And then you have all these micro level factors. So there's a, there's a very, very complex issues behind you know slack. I mean, the wonderful thing about slack to bring it back around, right, is you just drop that term and it basically obscures all the stuff we've been talking about. You just slack. 
you just locked it. <laughs> it's a simple just, explanation. It's actually what economists refer to as hand waving. Yeah. Right? It's Slack. You can't see me, but I'm waving my hands in front of my in front of me. Um, one of the things I wonder about is uh, Slack in hours. Um, which is that one of the things that we hear even uh, even when there have been wage increases at places like Walmart is that what people really want, in addition to a raise, is a predictable 40-hour-a-week schedule. And I was looking at the retail numbers for hours worked per week, and they've been going slowly down uh, for the last four or five years. And that seems like a technological shift, that retailers have the ability to schedule people much more efficiently. So it does seem like that's a measure of Slack that we don't talk about at all. But people who work for an hourly wage in the retail sector are hyper-focused on when you look at shareholder meetings and employees have a chance to talk about all they want is 40 predictable hours. Is there hours Slack? There could be hours slack in addition to the retail sector, um, you know, there's Uber, there's the entire gig economy that's, mm -hmm. you know, they're not working 40 hours a week, presumably, um, even if they wanted to, um, research has shown that it's pretty hard for a lot of these mm -hmm. gig economy jobs to turn into a full-time job. So I think that that's probably a drag on wage growth. Um, is that slack? Yeah, if these people want to be working more, then I think that counts as slack. I mean, I think in general, they also want predictable hours. Right, it's very difficult yeah. to get childcare if you don't know what your hours are going to be, and that affects your quality of life every bit as much as uh, a salary increase would. So I think another dimension of SAC that has been mentioned earlier about the German unions and the delocalization towards Eastern Europe is I think we also have to think about globalization. The fact that when the economy is heating up, it's not just that potentially we can hire more American workers, but indirectly we can hire more workers elsewhere in yeah. many other places, and therefore the quote-unquote slack, the, meaning the potential workers who could be coming on are not just in the U.S., but globally. Mm -hmm. And that can also contribute to, yeah. you, if know, you If you increase the supply, low. if you increase the supply, then guess what? The price is going to drop or at least stay lower. Another micro one we have mentioned is oh, recent research showed that uh, over 20% of American contracts, employment contracts, contain non-compete clauses. And that's truly insidious, right? So think about this. Imagine that you work for McDonald's and you go on to go to Jimmy John's because they're offering, you know, 50 cents more. But there's a non-compete clause that says you can't go to another franchiser. Uh, that's just a way of disciplining labor and holding down wages. That's purely what that's for. There's nothing about tech transfer. It's in the food sector. I should add, though, that though that is absolutely a problem um, and something that companies have been shamed for publicly, the shame seems to have worked in some way because a bunch of fast food companies, I think including Jimmy John's and McDonald's, have stopped that. Right. Yeah, a number of them. Can I ask a really broad question, which is it does seem that for a very long time, until about maybe two years ago, when we talked about jobs, we talked about the existence of a job. Do you have one or do you not have one? And now we're, we're talking about wages. There, there really does seem to have been a shift, and it feels like the last two years where we talk about all these things, offshoring, unionization, uh, that, that just talking about whether or not you have a job is, is no longer sufficient for mm -hmm. public policy. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So I've always thought that you could more or less throw out the headline number from the non-farm payrolls yeah. report. The quantity wasn't important. It's, it's always the quality that's important. And th yeah. this is another cause for low wages, I think, is that we consume services far and away, way mm -hmm. more than goods. Back in the 1950s, we mainly consumed goods. Um, goods producing sectors are really high wage, high hour sectors. 
services producing sectors are really low wage, low hour mm-hmm. sectors. So it makes sense that we're adding all of our jobs in the sectors that are producing the stuff we want to buy. Um, so there has been this shift. It hasn't just been in the past two years. I think people have only started paying attention to it in the past two years and trying mm-hmm. to figure out why we have such low wage growth. But yeah. if we're adding jobs slightly above minimum wage, it but, makes sense we're not getting But also mind pressure. you that mm-hmm. these services are protected from international competition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of interesting that some sectors that are low paying are the sectors that kind of we can still do because yeah. we are not, you know, but competing with other workers elsewhere. Some of this very real, I think that we should take nostalgia for manufacturing jobs seriously. It doesn't mean that we should, you know, use industrial policy to create a bunch of manufacturing jobs. It does mean that, it, that there's something going on when people miss them. And I wonder if what they, I mean, when you look at um, hours per week work, they're pretty stable for manufacturing jobs. They're much more likely to have health benefits. They're much more likely to be unionized. And one of the things I wonder is people aren't necessarily uh, nostalgic for making a thing in a plant. They're nostalgic for predictability, wages, benefits, a, a reasonable contract with an employer. Is that a fair way to look at it? Is that what the nostalgia is about? Well, as the oldest person at this table, I'll say yes, <laughs> <laughs> because I like nostalgia. But yeah, I mean, but we can also overestimate this. So, you know, remember a couple of years ago, there was two main topics of conversation. A, we're all going to be replaced by robots. Right, you notice how that's calmed down a little, which is kind of interesting. And the second one is the Uberization of practically everything. And the thing is, if you actually look into the BLS statistics and strip away all the noise, if you look at the category that really covers Uber workers and then just look at it as a percentage of the workforce, it's the same as in 1996. It's not this giant explosion of everything. So the casualization is not just happening in the kind of the Uber sectors, you know, non-traditionally attached. It's exactly in things like retail. It's in hotels. It's in banking. It's in what used to be traditional sort of upper working class, white collar jobs for the middle class. And that creates that feeling of sort of anxiety and tension and insecurity, which is bubbling through into our politics. We often talk about this in terms of measurable statistics and numbers, productivity, things like that. I sometimes wonder whether we need to have a more moral conversation about this. So Adam Smith believed that there was a floor for wages, that you know, you, there was just a socially acceptable floor, and below that, it just wasn't appropriate. Society agreed that you couldn't pay someone less than that. Um, and I feel like we don't really talk about that anymore. We talk about what the worker's marginal contribution is, because that is a thing that we can measure and we can talk about in this uh, antiseptic way without actually having to say, do you owe a certain, do you have any moral obligations to the people who work for you? I feel like we're very uncomfortable with that question, but it is ultimately what we're talking about when we talk about, say, the fight for 15, for a $15 uh, an hour minimum wage. Should we be talking morals when we're talking productivity? So I would question that productivity could be measured, for starters. But, uh, <laughs> Particularly but, uh, in the service sector. That's yeah. right. But, um, but I do take your point that um, there should be some a moral piece that comes into it. You're sounding very European, though, I have to say, yeah, <laughs> as you're saying that. Um, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. There is more of a social contract in Europe um, more broadly than there is in the U.S. So it might be the Anglo-Saxon world that has seen this shift. But in, in Europe, I think it's a bit different. But where you also see the reaction to this is in nationalism. So it's not just nostalgia for a union contract. It's nostalgia for a national economy where you can have meaningful control over that economy and the wealth it produces and the outcomes it produces. And part of what unites Trump, Brexit, uh, the French nationalists, all the sort of the populists around the globe is this idea of we're bringing, to use the great, great Brexit phrase, taking back control, securing the borders. Well, why do you want to do that? Because then the world becomes more predictable less uncertain and it benefits us the nation so defined so that's a that becomes a very powerful message if sort of if market liberalism can only produce a highly skewed 
individual form of wealth, then there is no moral content to that. And that becomes very fragile. I, first of all, I love it when you play the hits. Second of all, um, it sounds like one way to put this is that we've we, there's a feeling that we have lost democratic control over all of the inputs to our economy. Is that, is that a way to describe the frustration? I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> so I think it's a piece of it. I mean, also for the first time in modern history, you can't expect your incomes to be higher than your parents, right? So uh, for um, you know, working age people, in a, the median um, incomes in, across developed countries are stagnating or lower than they were before the financial crisis. Um, I think that that's a huge source of all the insecurity that we're seeing as well. Just want to back that up. There's been a great study by Rash Chetty and co-authors showing exactly this for the U.S. So looking at very detailed data about intergenerational mobility, meaning are you doing better than your parents? And, you know, for generations, maybe 30 years ago, like 90 percent of people in, you know, absolute terms were better off than their parents. Uh, for the latest generations, it's exactly what you were saying. It's like 50-50. So basically... On average, you can expect to do no better and there's a chance you're going to fall below. So I think that totally changes the climate of, you know, um, what we think about society and what we fear for our children. That, you know, we can't reasonably expect they're going to do better. They might do worse. So what can we do to protect ourselves, to regain control? So, you know, I think that's something that's, you know, worth thinking about in terms of the what we call in economics the political economy of it all. Like, so what are the uh, political pressures that lead to certain reactions and policies? Yeah, I also think we economists have been pretty tone deaf. So to your point, we've been explaining it with terms like productivity and slack and liquidity and things we can't actually measure. And Joe Sixpack doesn't understand any of that. Um, and so it really crystallized in the Brexit referendum, right, when Michael Gove said this country's had enough of experts. Um, I, I think that's what he was getting at. So I think as yeah. economists, if we can try to explain this stuff in yeah. plain English, that, that might make a difference in, in restoring trust in experts and economists. And I remember when he said that, and I remember all the, all the experts laughing on Twitter about what a ridiculous thing that was to say, when in fact, if we look at our own history of trade here in the U.S., there are a ton of experts who, in the meantime, many of which have recognized, well, we, we didn't quite get that right. We had it wrong. And so I, 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 I feel that. But there's also another side to this, though. The sort of the, the 20% of which we're all members have done astonishingly well. Right? There's had been a huge amount of wealth creation. There's been an enormous amount of productivity growth. And it's all been captured by the top 20%. So when we talk about 50-50 chance on average, that's actually not true. It's actually worse than that for 80%, and the top 20%, at least the top 10%, are pretty much insulated from that. If you're sending your kids to elite American higher education institutions, the chances of them not doing better are vanishingly small. If you're stuck with everybody who doesn't do that, then the chances are much greater. So today is Jobs Day, which is this chance we have once a month to talk about where we are. Uh, I think we all agree that the numbers we use to talk about Jobs Day, this top-line number, 312,000 jobs, is fairly meaningless. And yet it's a number that we talk about. It's a number that presidents brag about. Um, what is the right Jobs Day? If you could, each of you, if you could design Jobs Day from scratch and say, and say, this is the number that we should be talking about. These are the numbers that we should be celebrating. These are the numbers that we should be tracking. What does is, what is Jobs Day look uh, when you run it? So I'd suggest to also add the prime age employment to population that I was talking about initially okay. here, as well as the real wage growth. 
uh, I think that'd be helpful and that maybe break down the real wage growth into different subcategories of workers, which actually exists, by the way, in the report for like the non-managerial okay. workers, etc., so that we can have a m more complete picture of, of the labor market. The only thing I would add to that is highlighting what supervisors versus worker bees get. And that's in the job state. It's just nobody yeah. really ever pays attention to it. But this month, for example, it was the worker bees who got most of the wage gains. And that hasn't been the case for a long time. So as a rough and ready measure of inequality, I think that's pretty important. And a simpler way to do it still is to simply track it across the income distribution by quintiles. Divide yeah. the entire population at 20%, 40%, etc. And then say, what was real wage growth for the 20%? What was real wage growth for the 40th percentile? That's the numbers I would like to see. Should we be doing race and gender jobs day? I mean, there are differences, and they point to real structural problems uh, in the way we run our democracy. If you're going to redo the whole thing, why not do that too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important on a macro level, looking at the whole country, mm -hmm. that that kind of data gets lost. Um, but I mm -hmm. think that if you're looking at what's going on in communities and how they're you know, losing out and feeling insecure because of things like globalization, that's mm -hmm. absolutely key. All right. Well, we will come back and talk about communities hopefully before the next uh, American Economic Association annual meeting. Thank you all. Thank Thanks. you. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes to Alphaville with links to Ioana Marinescu's papers, but also this is a reboot and we genuinely want to hear from you. We want to know who you are, how you listen, when you listen, and also what you want to hear us talk about. We are old, and so we read email. You can find us on email at alphachat at ft.com. For my part, after that conversation, I promise to cover Jobs Day in exactly the way they instructed me. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com records.